We are doing a, a series called Be the Church, and we're entertaining the, the primary question, what would it look like for us, for, for you and me, to be the church rather than to do church? What does it mean for us to live our lives as the church rather than see the church as something you go to, something that you participate in, an event or a building or a program or whatever? What if it's actually your identity? And what if God did something through Jesus that made us something and then we lived out of that something? Wouldn't that be something, right? Um, So over the last two weeks, we've been looking at some of our identities in Christ. And there's been three identities that we've looked at in terms of who God has made us to be as disciples of Jesus. And so um, one week we looked at the family identity. Actually, last week, um, uh, Gino led us through that in, in terms of God being our father and that we are his children. Once we were not his children, and now we are his children, and God is our dad, and that means that the family of God, the church, is now our brothers and sisters. So what would it look like for us to relate to God as Father and to one another as brothers and sisters with Jesus being our older brother? That's what we looked at. Uh, And uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the missionary identity. The fact that all of us, when we were baptized into God, into this relationship with him, we were given the Holy Spirit. And and that's not incidental in any way. We are all actually empowered with the Holy Spirit to be missionaries every single day, every place that we go. You and I, if we're in Jesus, are on a mission, and we are missionaries. That is who we are. Some of us can run from that identity, but we can't escape it fully. We are his missionaries. Today, we're going to look at primarily our relationship to Jesus Because the the Bible talks about Jesus as being a king with all authority. And if Jesus is a king with all authority, then what it looks like for us to know him and to be in relationship with him is for us to be his servants. So those three identities make up who we are when we talk about ourselves being the church. And so I want to encourage you, I know John already mentioned this, but if you haven't been baptized and you're coming to faith in Jesus, in other words, you're you're looking to him as Savior, you're starting to begin to understand what it looks like to be part of his family, you understand that he gave his life for your sins so that you could be forgiven and freed and to live a new life, then the next step for you is baptism. There is no, like, 2A. You know, like, there's there's no, like, alternate plan for, for coming into the family of God you get to celebrate the fact that you have a new identity. And so, so many times I've seen people that are starting to come to faith in Jesus, and maybe they were baptized as a little baby infant for completely different reasons. Um, but they think, well, I, I don't know, I just don't feel like I, I, I'm good enough. Well, baptism has nothing to do with you, actually. If you've come to faith in Jesus, it's all God's work to make you someone that you weren't already. And so it's true of you whether or not you actually walk in it or not. So I would encourage you, really, to, to pray through um, whether or not God's calling you to be baptized. If, if you haven't yet and you've come to faith in him, that's number one. That's, that's step number one. So let, let's look at the servant identity. If we're servants and Jesus is our king, then that means being a disciple of Jesus. Guess what it's not just about? It's not just about us going to heaven when we die. It's not just about us living a life that pleases us. It's not just about us like saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sin now. I'll kind of walk my own way and do my own thing. And if, if I have time on certain weeks, I might give you an hour or so on Sunday and maybe a little bit of pocket change or whatever. No, if he's your king, then you are his servant. And that has radical implications on every moment that we live our lives. Every single one of them. But here's the issue. How many of you have lived your life under the authority of an all-powerful human king? Just by show of hands. No, huh? Obama doesn't make that list, right? And neither do any of the presidents that came before him. Even Pete and Fiona can't raise their hands because even though they've had a monarchy, how much authority do they have? Not much, right? The queen has authority over her dinner parties. I mean, if you go to the queen's dinner party, everything is under the authority of the queen. 
But you ask the press how much authority the queen has over them, and it's not much, right? Just look at the relationship between the two, and you'll see that one has no authority over the other. See, we, we don't have a concept of what it looks like to be underneath the authority of someone who is all-powerful. So the idea of Jesus being king is completely foreign to us. We think of him often as our friend, right, who comforts and, and comes to us in times of need and forgives us because he's our savior, and he is all those things. So don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting any of those things. But the primary way that the Bible talks about Jesus when it gets to the end of his earthly life is as a king who has authority over everything that happens on the earth. So what does it mean to live underneath this king? Well, we get a great picture of that actually. And my hope is as we look at this picture of what it means for Jesus to be a king, we would be reminded again of what this means and we would give our lives to it. See, here's the thing about identity. It's already true of you, whether or not you live in it or not. But I so want you as the family of God to submit yourselves again to walk in the ways of your own identity. It's kind of like, I mean, I'm a dad and I can choose to be a really bad dad or a really good one, but I can never choose not to be a dad ever again. Right? It's my identity. I can walk in it or I can choose to rebel against it, but it's still my identity. And God calls me to walk in it as a good dad that shows what he's like. And I want the same thing for you in terms of your servant identity. So one of the best places that we actually see this is a, a moment in time when Jesus uses his authority not to serve himself, but actually to serve those who are closest to him. This is what it looks like for Jesus to be a king. So we're going to look at John 13. If you're going to read along in one of the Bibles that we have here, uh, you're free to do so. You can also, uh, we don't have all of the verses on the screen because I actually, I, what I want is, I want this to hit you as a story. I want you to get wrapped up in it. So even if you have to like relax or get into a, a different position, to, to like whatever your story listening mode is, do that. There's some space in between the seats. You can kind of lay down if you want to. I don't know. Maybe that's not a good idea. I don't know. Um, but this scene that's happening, it, it occurs the night before Jesus was killed. So he's about to be executed because the authorities are starting to get the idea that Jesus himself is, is slated to be the next king of Israel. And the people who are in power at this moment in time do not want that to happen. So it's the night before he's about to be killed. And his disciples themselves, they've been hanging around with Jesus for three years. They understood him to be the next king of Israel. You've got to understand that point. They think they're gathering for a, 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 like a planning meeting of sorts to celebrate the, this new king that's about to be put onto this throne in Israel that's going to lead them to glory. And this scene happens during the Passover. And they're, what they're doing is they're gathering around to remember God's faithfulness in saving Israel from Egypt. And they're asking God, do it again, save us again. And they're thinking to themselves, this is the king that's going to do the saving. The other thing that you need to know is that they're about to have a meal. And what was customary in their day if you were going to have a meal in someone's home is that you would need your feet to be washed before you could sit down to have the meal. And it was customary if you came into a wealthy home, then the, the servants of that home would be the ones that do the washing. Okay, And the, the master of the home would not receive you until you had been cleaned. You can't gather around his table until you've had your feet washed. And the lowest person on the totem pole in the house was going to be the one that came with a bowl and washed your feet. So that's the context. Here's what happens. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples, those who followed him, during his earthly ministry. And now he would love them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Do you hear that? And that he had come from God and would return to God. So, he got up from the table, took off of his robe, 
wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel as he went around them. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but you will. No, Peter protested, you will never ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, well, if that's the case, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And Jesus replied, a person who has been bathed all over does not need to wash, except for the feet, to be entirely clean. And you, my disciples, are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, and he sat down and he asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. You see the picture? Jesus goes and he washes his disciples' feet. And the thing that we should all kind of be asking ourselves when we hear this is, why in the world would Jesus wash his disciples' feet? Why would he do such a thing? What's the reason for him getting down and serving them? And I think there are three primary reasons that we're going to talk about. We'll dialogue a little bit as we go through it. In terms of understanding our servant identity and what it means to serve a king who gives his life to serve those who follow him. So there are three things that we're going to talk about. The first one is this. In Jesus' kingdom, every king has a kingdom, right? And this is Jesus' kingdom. He's showing us what it's like. In Jesus' kingdom, your physical needs highlight your deeper need. So you have deeper needs. You also have physical needs. Jesus, he serves those physical needs as a way of going, hey, you don't understand the kinds of deeper needs that you have going on, and I'm going to serve them in such a way that they highlight the fact that you need much more help than you're letting on to us. So... Imagine, if you will, put on your thinking cast for a second, imagine what would be on someone's feet in that day and age. It's a hot, airy climate, arid climate. People wear open-toed sandals, and they would walk through streets with no sewage, like no, no like sewer, uh, you know, underground sewer utilities. What do you think's on people's feet? Just taking a guess. Probably not something good, right? You probably picked up a few things along the way, on the way to dinner, if if, if I'm thinking right. Animal feces, garbage. You probably have calluses and maybe some diseases on your feet. You see why it's necessary to wash people's feet before you have dinner? Because, I mean, honestly, who wants to sit around a dinner table with that going on, right? So here's what's happening. There's a deeper need... That, that they have, which is to have their feet clean so that they can have a meal together and remember God's saving work for his people. But the, the physical need points to the deeper spiritual need that they all have. And the disciples think that this is just about the physical need. They think Jesus is just doing this to meet their physical need. They don't quite get it. But Jesus is going, look, you guys have a need for your feet to be cleaned. I mean, it reeks up in here. We've got to take care of the problem. But there's a deeper spiritual need going on because so does your heart need cleaning. So I'm serving you by washing your feet, but it's only a picture of what I'm about to do to clean your hearts. And that's why he's saying, do you understand what I've done for you? That's when you'll see, he's going, that's when you're really going to see 24 hours from now, when I go to the cross for you and I'm strung up because of your sin that's in your heart to clean you of it, to forgive you of it so that you can stand cleansed before God, perfect in my love for you. 
that's when you're going to know how much of a servant I really am. And that's, that, that's when you're going to know just how much it will take to clean you from the inside so that you can belong to me. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter and the rest of them is, look, over the next 24 hours, I'm going to serve you by doing what's absolutely necessary to clean you. You think your feet are filthy? Wait till you see what's next. Wait till you see what I'm about to do. And here's the point. If you're not willing to let me wash your feet, there is no way you're going to stand before a cross, watch me die for your sins, and feel like you need me to cleanse you of your heart. There's no way. Because one, one need leads to the other. So if you walk in here going, I don't smell a thing. I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. I'm just fine. Don't wash my feet. I have no needs that you can possibly meet. Jesus is going, if I don't meet that need, there's no way you're coming to me for the deeper need. See, Jesus always uses the, the, the everyday reality of life to point to our deeper needs. That's why every time, like when, when people would get around the table and they would start to eat, Jesus was going, you think that's good bread? I'm the bread of life. You want real satisfaction to the point where you never have to come back again? You come to me to find it. And I will give you to the full. There's a woman that's at a well and she's drawing from the well. And Jesus goes, if you think that water is good, I've got the water of life. I've got living water. And she's like, give me some of this water. He's like, it's, I'm standing right in front of you. I'm it. You, you want to not thirst again? You want to not look to people to bring you kind of a sense of who you are and your identity? Start looking to me to do that and you will live a different life. I mean, think, so think of everyday life. What this means is there, there is no such thing as mundane activity in your lives. Now, I mean, think of the things that you normally do on an everyday basis. How many of you eat more than once a day? Great. Let me ask, when you eat, do you do it as an exercise of just getting through a meal so that you can move on to the next thing? Or, is, or do you have 21 chances a week to go, God, thank you for being my great provider. You're, you've been so good to me, and, and you've provided for my every need, and this meal that we're enjoying, even if it's fast food in the car on the way to someplace, is still God's provision in your life. It would change radically, right, if you saw everyday life that way. Every time you took a sip of water, thank you, God, that you're the, the living water that gives me life. Every time that we like, get into the shower to clean ourselves, it should remind us that God has already done the major cleaning in our life. Like, what if every shower was an opportunity to praise God for the fact that he's given you forgiveness and cleansing in Christ? You'd shower differently, right? You might sing a bit more, right? Let me ask this. Why, why is it that Jesus would do this? Why would he give us physical needs and then meet those needs and then show us that we have deeper needs? Why would he want us to walk in this cycle of life? Why do you think it's important for us to connect everyday life to this cycle of Jesus serving our needs? Why? I mean, think of it like a parent who, you know, who provides every day for his kids. And in the, in the daily providing, they, one thing I notice is like when we say it's time for dinner, Caleb just shows up at the dinner table and he sits down and he expects a meal. Go figure, right? We say it's dinner time, he expects a meal. He trusts that we're actually going to put food on the table. Why? Because we've put food on the table for three years, right? So it's that continual building of trust. Yeah, great. What else? Yeah, you're right. We're so prone to forget, aren't we? So prone to forget. Because if we forget who we are, then our actions completely change, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the? I mean, we didn't look at it here, but at the same meal, Jesus gives the, the bread and the cup, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. Why that? Because we need to remember, Right? And God is so good, isn't he, that he set up life in such a way that we would have all these reminders coming into our, our lives every single moment. I mean, our, our, 
relationships, our spouse, our kids, our, our job, all of that are, in, in God's economy are meant to be reminders moment by moment of God's provision and his care and his goodness and his reminders that it's, life is not all about us. And, and he's dealing with our selfishness and our pride and our anger. And our, I mean, he's doing all of that. And you, most of the time we have no idea that he's even doing it. And yet he's doing it moment by moment, day by day, and are our eyes open to actually seeing what he's doing? You know what happens when we do see? We give him praise. I'm convinced that as God's people, we should be walking around all day long going, I can't believe how well served I am in Jesus. I mean, it's unreal that I get to serve a king who serves my every need, and he reminds me moment by moment, day by day, of his provision to meet all those needs. That's what it means to walk as a servant. And if that's not happening, then it may be a symptom of the second thing, which is this. In Jesus' kingdom, your worth is not determined by your position. In Jesus' kingdom, your worth is not determined by your position. Why, does it, why is it that Peter says to Jesus, don't wash my feet? Why do you think he says that? Yeah, you serve me? I, I, like, I should be serving you. Yeah, that could be one thing. What else? What else is going on in Peter's mind, do you think? Yeah. I mean, if your experience of what a king is like has been that they sit on a throne and everyone comes around them to serve all of their needs day in, day out, night in, night out, Does the king ever serve anybody? Not really. At least not in Peter's experience. And so Peter's going, you're you're about to be the next king of Israel. And you put on a servant's robe, you get down on your hands and your feet with a dirty bowl and you wash my feet? That's crazy. I can't let that happen. And he's probably like, if you know anything about Peter, he's probably got so much pride in him that he's watching Jesus do this like around the room and everyone's just going along with it, right? John and James, they're all like, you know, just letting Pe- uh, Jesus do this. And Peter's probably going to himself, I'm going to be the one that gets the test. Like everybody else is failing the test. I'm going to be the one that passes it. When he gets to me, I'm going to go, nope, Jesus, you're the king. I'm the servant. I'll serve you. And yet he's wrong, right? See, the job that Jesus is doing is beneath him, and so Peter refuses to allow it. Because in Peter's mind, your role determines your worth. But in Jesus' kingdom, it's just the opposite. Do you hear what, 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 what is said about Jesus before he started serving? Jesus knew that he had all authority, and that he had come from who? God his Father. And that he would return to who? God is Father. So he's going, my identity is completely secure. I'm not looking to these people in order to secure my authority. I've got it. Not only that, but I've got the perfect, pure love of God poured into my heart such that I know that I am the one and only Son of God, fully accepted, fully loved by an infinite Father. And it's that security and identity that leads him to be able to give his life as a servant. See, in the disciples, they don't get this yet because they think that their position is all about, their position equals authority and status. Part of the reason that they've been following this Jesus around for three years is because they think this guy's going to be the next king. And guess what? If he's the next king, who does that make me? Maybe I'll be one of his generals. Maybe I'll be in a position of authority. Maybe I'll get to have respect and status and people will look up to me. Maybe I could be that person. I'm just a fisherman. Nobody knew my name. I sat on a lake day after day catching fish and nobody appreciates me. Maybe for the first time I'll get what's due to me. Jesus is going, no, you don't get it. That's not what my kingdom's about because the first will be last. And he says, here's what my kingdom's about. And he gets on his hands and his knees. 
And so Peter's going, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't even know if I want to be part of this kingdom. You can't be a king and a servant. But here's the thing, in God's kingdom, the king is the greatest servant. That's one of the greatest places to see this is in Philippians 2. The passage that we're really familiar with. But it says this, instructing the church, instructing us, people who are servants of the king. Paul says this to us. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. In other words, I want you to be a humble servant. Why? Here's the why. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If he's your king, this is how life works. Here's our king. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I mean, think of this. The infinite King of kings and Lord of lords who made everything that is. The Bible says there is nothing that exists that He did not make. Go out and look at it all. Jesus made it. Stars and planets and galaxies. He spun them all into existence. You talk about authority? There is no one else with that kind of authority. And yet he did not use that authority as something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. Nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This Jesus, worthy of all service, does not demand that he be served but he takes the lowest possible position. I am too. Because <laughs> Jesus was, his worth was not based on his position. And so he calls his followers to the same life. I mean, just think of the people that Jesus regularly welcomed into his kingdom. The poor and the outcasts, widows and orphans, the sick, the lame, the blind. You know what's the, the common denominator between all of those people? They have absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. I mean, think how crazy that is. You know what kings do? They're really good resource gatherers. That's what makes you a king, is when you can persuade people with influence who are strong and capable and wise and have experience and strength and land and wealth to gather around your cause because you don't have any of those things. Right? No king can rule without subjects who, who use their resources for the sake of the king. That's the way kingdoms work. But not Jesus' kingdom. His is an upside-down kingdom. This is the way that Jesus' kingdom works because he's a king who has everything to offer. And so he doesn't welcome in people who have stuff that are just looking to offer it to Jesus. He welcomes in people who know that they need the king's resources to live. If you're sick and lame and you haven't walked for 30 years and the king comes along and says, I have resources for you, you're going to take them, right? Right? You're going to be welcomed into that kingdom with open arms and Jesus is going to rejoice over somebody coming into the kingdom like that. Why? Because they know that they have needs and they know that Jesus is meeting those needs. See, Peter gets it all backwards. He thinks he's there because he has something to offer. And Jesus is going, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't have stuff to offer. You have needs. And as I fill those needs, you'll have something to offer, but you're going to have to serve others as an example of it. So Jesus regularly calls those who realize that it cannot be about what they've done, but about what their king has done for them. 
And that's why Jesus, he's the only king who's able to say this. This is a radical statement. I don't know if you realize how radical this is. But in Mark 10, 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the one who it's all about, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, I'm, I'm the king that meets needs. I'm not the one who demands that my needs be met. That's why it's so important that his disciples let Jesus wash his, their feet. Because to deny Jesus from doing that is to deny that you have a need for him to be your king. So let me ask, just you don't have to answer this, but just thinking through your own life, when you think of your relationship to God, and particularly to Jesus, do you see the quality of your relationship to him as being sustained and maintained by your effort and your work to serve the king? Like when you get up in the morning and you do good stuff for God, you're like, yeah, we're, got, we're on really good terms today. And when you get up and you know you've blown it for half the day, are you like, I could never like, turn back to God because if I did that, it would just be an admission that I haven't done things right. Whose service are you putting more emphasis on if that's the case? Yours or his? If this is a pattern in your life... I would submit to you that it's because you don't see Jesus as the servant king. You don't see him as he really is. He is a king that meets your needs. And so the best thing that you can possibly do, even after you screw up and mess up and like do things completely terribly wrong, or, or spend days like rebelling against God and like not praying to him, and I mean, the best thing that you could possibly do is go, you're the king. You meet my needs. You welcome those into your kingdom that are honest about their needs. Jesus, I haven't washed anyone's feet, and I haven't been close to you, but I know that you're my king. So will you come and you wash the filth away that I've accumulated for myself? And he will, because he's the servant king that meets needs. See, this is one thing I've come to learn about what it means to be a Christian and a disciple of Jesus. People think that uh, maturity means that, you're, um, that you grow out of your needs, right? So like when you start anything new, you're, you're like completely incompetent in doing it. I mean, just think of something that you tried to do that, that you're new at, like drive a car, let's say. You think you know how to drive a car. You get into the car. You start driving. You learn, I have no idea how to drive a car. Like I'm hitting the, the brake at all the wrong times, and I don't know how to turn it as, you know, the, as much as I need to turn it in order to make the turns. I'm overturning. I'm underturning. I'm like you know, stopping and going, stopping and going. And then after a while, when you mature in your ability to drive a car, you have less needs, right? Less need for correction. Less need from advice, and you start to get some pride over that, like somehow you're the best driver in the world, you know? I know that's never happened to you guys. I'm just talking about myself, and you're part of my therapy session, okay? So, so just humor me, right? But you've been driving for, for a length of period of time, and now all of a sudden you go, yeah, I'm a pretty good stinking driver, you know? It's all these other people that haven't learned the lessons that I've learned about driving. If they would all just get their acts together, we, the road would be a beautiful place, right? And so we take that same understanding with Jesus and we go, maturing equals not having as many needs. Here's, here, that's a lie. Here's what I've come to learn is the truth. Maturing in Jesus as a disciple is to become more aware of your needs. Is to become more in tune with the fact that you have needs. And they are far deeper than you ever realized when you first came into a relationship with Jesus. You thought you were like this messed up. And then over time, as God gives you grace, you start to see yourself in a clearer mirror, and you go, holy cow, I'm a terrible person. I'm selfish, and I'm self-centered, and I'm prideful, and I'm, like all this stuff about you. That's actually maturity. Because then, who do you start to doubt can can fill the gap and clean those needs. You start to put greater and greater doubt in yourself to be able to do those things. 
You go, I'm just not capable. I thought I was, and Jesus was going to be a little bit of help to me. I've realized I'm a mess, and the only one that can do it is Jesus. That's maturity in God's kingdom. That's maturity. Imagine that, right? And here's the thing that happens. As that starts to happen in our own hearts, here's the last piece. We start to follow the example of the king when we know how well we've been served. When you know that you had nothing to offer Jesus and he gave everything for you, you know what you start to do? You start to go, man, I need to like, position my life in such a way that other people might know how great a servant king we have. And that he's such a better king than anything they got going on in their life. One time Jesus has these couple followers of his, part of his twelve. And they're on kind of the same track as Jesus is, they, they, or as, as Peter is. They don't quite understand what the kingdom is all about. And so um, they, they want to make sure that they secure their place in Jesus' kingdom as like the, the, the right-hand men of Jesus. They want to be high up in his organization. But they're, 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 they're not bold enough to ask themselves, and so they get their mom to do it. <laughs> I love that. They're like, Mom, can you go and ask Jesus if we can like be generals or something? And so the mom goes and she asks Jesus if her boys can be on his right and left hand when Jesus is inaugurated as king. This is a weird scene, right? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus called them together. So the two boys that got it wrong, plus all the rest of them, gathers them all together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. This is the way of the world. You're familiar with this. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. See, if you serve Jesus as the ultimate king, then your life will start to look like Jesus' kingdom. And if you ever read anything about Jesus' kingdom... You start to know what Jesus' kingdom is like, where those who are lacking receive what they need, and and where those who are broken are made whole, and where those who are enemies are welcomed as friends. And you start to position your life in such a way that you're actually living the life of the king because he was such a great servant to you. See, if we truly believe that Jesus is our servant king, then we'll believe that we're servants. Not servants out of obligation, not servants out of guilt, not servants who must do something in order to not receive punishment as so often we can think that that's the case. But we will be servants. It'll change the posture of our life towards God and towards others. So let me ask, I want to dialogue about a few things before we end. What, what do you think would be the posture of our life towards God if Jesus is our servant king and we are our servants, given everything that you've heard so far? What, describe to me how we would relate to God. How, how would we, I mean, what would the posture of our lives be? What, what would be true of us as people if we understood that Jesus is our servant king and that we serve him? But even before we get to like what we do with other people, how would we relate to Jesus, to God? What's that? We'd always be available. Yeah. Yeah. We we would want to hear from the king, wouldn't we? If Jesus was the best king there was, and he's available to us as his servants, we would be like, I'm here. Speak to me. Tell me what to do next. I need a word from my king. Because my king is good. What else? Be more receptive, right? Yeah. We, we probably wouldn't be so suspicious of his commands. That's the way I would probably put it, Sharon, if I were thinking about that. Does that sound right? We would go, man, you're a good king, therefore your commands are good. Like one of the things I want as a dad, like 
thing I, I, I want my son to know more than anything is that when he obeys me, it's going to go well for him. Like, I, I want him to know that, I, like, the, the commands that I give him aren't just to be harsh punishments. I'm actually trying to lead him in the way of life. You know? I mean, as parents, that's what you want, right, for your kids? In the same way, I think God is going, I want you to understand that I'm good. And then when I give you commands, it's for your good. Because I've designed you. I mean, the truth is, God knows our hearts far better than we as parents know our kids' hearts. And if we, in such an imperfect way, have that desire for our kids, how much more so does God have that for us? What else? Yeah, yeah. Rather than looking to ourselves to be king all the time, to make things happen in our lives all the time, to get up every day and go, well, it's about me again today. Like, I've got to pull it all together and do it because if I don't do it for me, who's going to do it? We start looking to our king to provide for us because he has all the resources, right? That's what we've already said. If it's Jesus' kingdom, he's the king, he's got all the resources, we'd get up every day and go, Jesus, can I have some of your resources today? And he'd love to give them. That's the thing about Jesus. He loves to give his resources to his people. Loves to. Do you believe that? I hope you do. It's good news, right? And then when he gives us resources, who are those resources primarily to be used for? Us or the king? It's a trick question, right? (laughs) The king. So do you see the things that God has given into your lives as resources to be used for his good purposes? Or do you see them primarily as ways to fulfill your mission in your life? I mean, I think about this in terms of my home. And and Mandy and I have radically shifted some ways in terms of the way that we see our own home. Because for me, even I would say a year to 18 months ago, I saw our home as primarily a refuge to get away from the world. Like, ministry was something that you do out there. Like, particularly as a pastor, you can fall into this trap where you start thinking that's about the number of hours that you put in. And you go, man, I've put in like 50 hours this week, 60 hours, and I'm exhausted, and so I want to retreat into my home because that's my place of refuge. And about, a, I, like I said, about 18 months ago, the Spirit really was working on my heart in this and, and challenging me in some ways. And he's going, Who, whose home is it? Who gave you that? Who provides for your needs? Who is your refuge? Who is your strength? Who is your shield? Let's read through Psalms together and be reminded, you know? Jesus is all those things. And so now my home isn't so much a place of refuge, but it's the front line of God's mission and ministry in the world. And I love it because it's starting to seep into my kids too. So we, we were having dinner um, just Friday night, and, and Mandy goes, okay, Caleb, it's time for dinner. And Caleb, the first thing he says out of his mouth, he goes, who's coming over? <laughs> He's starting to understand that our dinner table is a place that we welcome people as family, those, especially those who are far from God. We welcome them in, and we give them a place, and we give them a meal, and we bless them because God has so blessed us in Christ and welcomed us to his table when we were not welcome. That's a shift, right? It's a big shift. And it all, has to, it all comes from Jesus being king and us being his servants. How about, how about in terms of other people? If Jesus is our king and we live for his good pleasure, what would be the posture of our lives towards other people? What do you think? I mean, think through some, maybe some specifics. Those of you who are married, your spouse, what would be the posture of your life towards them? Serve them like you serve God. Yeah. How often in your marriage, uh, those of you who are married, do you wait to like be served in order to serve? Or internally, you've got kind of like this, you know, gauge going on where you go, I've put in a lot more hours in terms of serving our family this week, and my spouse is a little bit behind on me. Therefore, I'm going to cruise control for a little bit. 
Is that living out of your servant identity? No, right? Serve as you've been served, not by your spouse, but by the king of kings who gave his life for you. And, and here's what that also means. When you are served by your spouse, like I, I, have, I just happen to have a wife that serves me really well. And, and we're, we happen to be in a season of life where because we've had our, our second son and she's home from work, she just outserves me in terms of our family, like three to one at least. I'm probably, I'm not even like joking about that. <laughs> and, and for a little bit of time, actually, when I was looking at this, I'm, I was thinking to myself, like, I, I've got a little bit of guilt over that because I just physically, I can't serve our family and our kids as much in this season of life as my wife is serving. And so, I, like, for a period of time, I'm going, I just feel guilty that, like, I can't be the one to feed our infant child. And, like, I mean, men, I'm sure you've gone through some of that. You've had kids before. And I had to remember, okay, yeah, I can actually receive service in the same way and not feel guilty about it because it's Jesus that's serving me through my wife. And what a gift that is from him, you know? And so it frees me up to serve when I can and where I can, and I'm going to fail and fall at that, and I need to ask for forgiveness when I'm not living out of my servant identity in our home. But men, I mean, this is, a, this is a calling for us. We're supposed to serve our wives as Christ loved and served the church. That's a big, that's a big task. And we're going to fail at it, which is why we all need Jesus. Amen? But what, I mean, think of some other areas of life. How about your kids? What would change about your, your posture with your kids if you were living out of your servant identity? Yeah, that's a big one, right? I mean, do we parent in such a way that our kids need a better father and mother than we are for them? And do we point them regularly to the greater one? And do we parent, I mean, do we always parent in such a way that we're just giving them law all the time? Follow this rule, do this. When you do, you get this. When you don't, you get this punishment. Or do we actually give them grace as we've been given grace? Like, how are they going to learn what grace looks like if they don't see it in our homes? I don't know. They're going to hear about it on Sunday morning, but are they going to see it in your home in the way that you parent them? It's big, right? How about our neighborhoods? What would our posture be towards our neighbors? Jesus said, love your neighbor. What if he actually met your neighbor? (laughs) You know? What would change? Yeah, we'd get to know them well enough to know what their needs really are, right? So that we might be able to serve them. And, and if we have a servant king that's working through us in this identity, we would, we would look at the landscape of maybe our neighborhoods or even our jobs and we would go, Jesus, you, you have all authority. You see all the needs. Show me what's lacking so that I can be a servant and bring what's lacking to this place so that they might know that there's a servant king out there that loves them. How about our church family? Oh, let's not go there, right? (laughs) What about here? Or in the way that we relate to one another as a church? One of the things I think of is like, Maybe we would look for the, a way to serve that gives Jesus most glory and not us. And sometimes I think, you know, it, it's so easy for us to try to serve in such a way that people notice our service. You know, we kind of do the Peter thing. Maybe, you know, I was down here and maybe I'll show that I'm spiritual or, or I've gotten it enough and then others will look up to me and go, man, that guy's really got it together. Maybe instead we would actually look for the position that gives us less fame, less accord, so that Jesus might get the fame that we would otherwise grasp. Maybe we wouldn't turn off our service when the event is over. You know? 
Like we, we've got lots of ways that we can serve. And sometimes, like, I think we do a great job at serving. Don't get me wrong. But I think, like, do we all, like, go home and go, switch, you know? Let's turn it off. Or do we think, like, I put in my time and I've done the service thing and I, you know? Some of that is actually that we're serving with our resources rather than the resources of the king. What if you actually saw your life as having all of Jesus' resources at your disposal and you served in such a way that you drew on his resources rather than just your own? I think about that a lot when I'm tired. You know? We got a great servant king. I hope you see that. And, and I think and I hope, my prayer is that the Spirit is actually speaking to you and letting you know of some ways that you might actually change the way that you live towards him and towards other people as you start to live this out. Because I think it does have radical implications for the way that we live. Amen? So let's walk in it because we have a really good king. And let's pray to him. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus as our good king. And we know that he is the shepherd that comes and comforts us, and we thank you for that. We know that he is the Savior who comes and dies in our place. And so we praise you, God, that we have one such as that that we can count on when our sins are great. But I thank you also that we have a servant king who both has all authority in heaven and on earth and uses his authority to get down and wash our feet. What an example that he set for us. What a great king we have. Help us, Spirit, to know how to walk in our identity as servants in such a way that it would bring honor and glory to you. We ask for Christ's name. Amen.